Hello, Cachimbonas. I'm so excited to bring you the third episode of season three of Radio Cachimbona. On this episode, I interviewed that girl, Danny, who is Afro-Salvadoreña and has done a bit of her own historical work in uncovering her own family's lineage and in doing so also came to know a lot more about the history of Afrodescendientes in El Salvador. And so I sat down with her and we talked about many things that she wrote in her Medium article, which I'll post in the show notes for you all to check out. We spoke about the Salvadorian nation state's efforts to erase Afrodescendiente history from the history of the nation state. And at the same time, also talked about how there's the anti-Blackness sentiments that exist towards MS-13 gang members and how that's weaponized as a means to demonize and criminalize MS-13 gang members. It's a particularly important topic because anti-Blackness is a huge issue within the Salvadorian community. The nation state's efforts have worked and there are many people that you will see today in this year of our Lord 2020, claiming that there are no Afro-Salvadorians. So I was really happy to have Danny on the podcast, and I hope that you all learn as much from her as I did. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a Lit Review patron. So currently, I release two episodes a month to the public, sometimes three, if I want to show off some really dope past lit reviews from the past two seasons of Radio Cachimbona. But the lit review is some, is a special treat that patrons get in between public episodes where I pick out a book list and I discuss the texts with women of color over wine. As a non-Black Latinx person, as a Salvadorian woman, I have experienced imposter syndrome in academic spaces, and I know that as a first-generation student as well, and a first-generation professional, there's kind of this constant experience of alienation, of trying to decipher the, the codes of this white quote-unquote professionalism culture. And I do think that people's experiences in the schooling system, especially in higher ed, can leave with a sour taste in their mouth because of the white supremacy that exists within these institutions and the ways in which they make you have feelings of imposter syndrome. And so that's why I wanted this to be focused to be conversations with women of color because I want this space to reclaim intellectualism as something that belongs to women of color and also something that can be done in a lighthearted way. We don't need to be hella stuffy with our ties on, okay? We can have a nice little IPA, a nice little Sauvignon Blanc if we feel like it, and talk about real shit. So if that sounds appealing to you, then you can become a patron for either $5 a month or $10 a month. And I'm always working on new things for the patrons. So donating to the Patreon helps me get closer to my podcasting dream of making this a full-time thing, of taking what I've learned from these ivory towers and the 
law school as an institution and the legal profession and and just continually bringing you wrong critical analysis the patreon is the way for me to do that and also still stay aligned with my anti-capitalist values i'm not selling y'all weird diet supplements herbal teas mattresses that i've never tried or whatever and i think that makes the experience more enjoyable for everybody it feels more like a real conversation and it's not as distracting supporting the patreon helps me with many things in the podcast i have a salvadoreña intern her name is maybelline and she is the person who does the graphics for all the social media posts the instagram has been a huge part of my visibility getting gaining more listeners for the podcast i also use it to buy the books for the lit review which of course unfortunately are pricey and and for i think moving forward i think i'd also really like to get an actual soundboard to be better able to equalize the audio and i'll just remind y'all that the content that i bring you is what i'm able to create within the confines of my schedule because i am a full-time civil rights litigator and it's really difficult to be honest there's definitely times where i'm fucking tired and (laughs) i want to be able to take a real break after i work but it's passion for this project that fuels me and i do want to get to a space where i have more time to to truly devote to the podcast and bring to fruition the vision that i have for it so if you are moved by any of this please become a patron and you can also support by leaving a apple podcast review there were two folks who left apple podcast reviews this past month and it really made my day and it also helps with visibility you can also follow at radio cachimbona on facebook twitter and instagram where i post graphics and little clips of the episodes and what we're talking about there so the conversation continues on social media i hope you all enjoy everyone. I am very excited today to welcome Danny, who is going to introduce herself in a bit. And we're going to talk about the history of Afrodescendencia El Salvador and the ways in which race is has been shaped in relation to problematic racial hierarchies that center mestizo identity and also the ways that Afrodescendentes in the Salvador are, are have been utilized and as a means and justification for criminalizing and demonizing 
people who are involved in MS-13. But before we get more into that, Danny just wanted to have you share what your research background is and start there. Okay, great. Yeah, so my name is Danielle Parada, Danny, and my background is actually in applied developmental psychology. I just received my PhD in that. Um, and so, thank you. Yeah, and, <laughs> and we look at kind of like the intersection of developmental psychology or science and policy and the ways it's applied in practice. And so my research was on the academic trajectories of Latin ex and black immigrant students. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough of a sample size to look at Afro Latinos, unfortunately. So that's like okay. the asterisk of all that. But yeah, that's what I did with the data that I had available, which was about like a, a data set of 56,000 kids from the Miami-Dade school system. And we looked at, we have data from pre-K up until 12th grade now. And so I was able to follow academically kids who self-identified as Latinx and kids mm -hmm. who identified as Black and, and how they did over time. So that's kind of my, my background. And so that background kind of had me thinking about Blackness and how that works in tangent for, for like Central Americans specifically. Just, you know, to tie it back to the whole topic that we're talking about. Thinking about how Black immigrant children have to kind of go through this double jeopardy kind of experience due to their immigration status and living in the United States that's very anti-Black, right? Mm -hmm. And so that had me thinking more deeply about the research questions that I was I was forming and how that relates to criminality and, and things of that nature. Got it. And so... When you were, you mentioned that there weren't enough Afro-Latinx students in the study to speak on their experience. Can can you speak to how, what, what stories statistics can tell us and where they falter in not being able to tell the full story? Yeah, of course. Actually, this was actually a really great learning lesson for me. So when you're doing research as a graduate student, a lot of times you're handed over a project that you're trying to learn how to run, right? And you're trying to learn how it started and all these things, right? And a lot of times there aren't people like us in, in these levels, right, that are with our background. Like I'm Central American, I'm Salvadoran from a low income neighborhood in Northern Virginia, right? And so you have a different perspective, right? So you'll start looking at data and you'll ask, we have data on Latino children and we have data on Black children. Can we look at Afro-Latinidad, right? Like there's mm -hmm. methods and these just very quickly, like statistical packages that we use to run statistics. There's methods to, to be able to make uh, variables out of mm -hmm. other variables, right? So mm -hmm. if you have Latinos and Black, and Black students, right, there might be some that check off both, right? So trying mm -hmm. to identify those students. And unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of those students. There was maybe a hundred compared to 5,000 that just identified as Latino and black separately, right? And so when we do these statistical methods, sometimes these ends become ends or the sample size are so small that our statistical uh, programs won't be able to run them. And it just mm -hmm. is like error, error, error. And so I, I thought about 
how, wow, I, I wish I would have been in the project at the start to be able to ask more mm -hmm. about Afro-Latinidad, right? But because there's not a lot of us in these spaces, I came along very later into the project and then my advisor's mm -hmm. like, that's a very good question that I hadn't thought about before. And it's like, oh, no, you know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. kind of like, well, I can't collect the data now, right? And mm -hmm. so it was kind of, I was sad that I wasn't able to run any models. I was able to run like simple things, correlations, not to mm -hmm. be super like technical, but just simple things. And there was kind of like a gradient effect. So kids identified as just Latino would probably was doing a lot better in their GPA and some test scores compared to kids who were Afro-Latino compared to kids who are black. Like it was like a gradient effect. So mm. that that simple correlation, mm. even, you know, I didn't in poverty and gender and things like that. That's what really started getting me to think, oh, if I had enough kids, maybe I could have looked at how how Afro-Latino kids fit into this whole group of kids in, in Miami-Dade because my data set came from Miami-Dade. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how did you move on from that project? Are you working on your own dissertation now or was that your final project in the PhD or the dissertation? So yeah, so what's really cool about my program is that we don't do a traditional dissertation. What we do is a three-paper dissertation, meaning if you do three manuscripts, that's like your full dissertation. So this is kind of a topic that I've done on and off on three separate papers, right? Starting from pre-K to third grade, then third grade to fifth grade, and then sixth grade to eighth grade. So three separate age groups that I saw, and it's always a similar pattern. Right, Latino kids, their GPA is being a little bit higher. And I was just like a little bit, I, I was thinking, you know, this data set's from Miami-Dade. And because, you know, there's a lot of colorism in our communities, I'm thinking about who are the people that are teachers, right, in these classrooms, who mm -hmm. is running the, the, the school districts, the schools, things, questions like that. And that's what has started getting me to think about not just Latinidad, but more like what is the Black immigrant experience in the United States, right? And so I started talking to a professor, Dr. Leah Adams, who I mentioned in a recent piece that I wrote on Afrodescendencia en El Salvador. And I started talking to her and she's like, oh, take my black psychology class in the fall and I'll be part of your committee and we can try to talk about these these questions that you have. Right. And she was amazing. She always made references to black cultural icons and stuff during her lectures. So it was like a really, really cool experience taking her class. But she started asking when you mention a black immigrant, what do you mean by that compared to African-American, right? They're two totally distinct experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So they have two totally... African-Americans have a totally distinct history, right? And so it started making me think about, okay, how does that relate to us as Central Americans, right? Because mm -hmm. I started thinking about 
we had to think deeply about the black experience in our black psychology class. She would talk about different theorists' perspective on blackness. And one of them specifically, it's called African psychology with a K. And they talked about how blackness is a global thing. It's a global mm -hmm. struggle, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so because of that global struggle, different countries are going to be reacting differently to it, right? But every country has some sort of African or Black kind of experience that's marginalized in a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I was always fed as a kid this lie. And I'm not sure if you've heard this before where they said no Black folks ever came to El Salvador. I have heard that, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's a myth perpetuated because of the 1933 immigration law by enacted by what is his name Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez the dictator where it barred people from non-European oh. descent to come into the country right oh. and so my mom who's a teacher she would tell me you know this is what the law was then and that's why we don't have a black diaspora in 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 El Salvador and stuff like that and I was just it was always it didn't always sit right with me I was always like that's just doesn't make sense to me. And, and their excuse was always, you know, it's because we don't have a Caribbean coast, right? And as a kid, mm -hmm. that always sat kind of weird with me. And it wasn't just my mom. It was, I heard it like everywhere. A lot mm -hmm. of Salvadorans say those things. And so it just made me think, how is that even possible? We share a border with Honduras. We share one with Guatemala, right? right? Colombia yeah. is not that far away. I don't understand. Migration there's migration not just to the United States, right? Taking my own experience and then talking with this professor started making me think about, okay, what is Afrodescendencia in El Salvador? Is there history? I need to read up on this. So I mentioned this in an article that I self-published on Medium where I did a project where we talked about, we could talk about any topic, but it had to be related to lack psychology and theory. And so I was like, okay, let me look at racial identity in, in El Salvador, specifically Black identity in El Salvador. What does that mean? Is there a Black identity, right? And so that was where I kind of steered off from my dissertation and have ever have been ever since, right? Asking these questions about Afrodescendencia in, in El Salvador, right? So it, it started with asking questions of my data set and ended up with me taking a class on it. And then now I'm just writing articles, self-publishing about the questions that I'm investigating on my own really right now, because I, I, I did do my dissertation already. So now I can actually dedicate time to a topic that I'm, I'm passionate about. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this history with us, especially because El Salvador is a nation state also has worked to erase the history and presence of Afrodescendentes in El Salvador. And so wanted to ask if you could speak to the history of Afrodescendencia in El Salvador dating back to the colonial period, because I, I was thinking about how you were mentioning that this theorist stating that Blackness is a global phenomenon and that your work is trying to uncover the experiences of Black immigrants and how, and that particular experience and to the U.S. And I think that they're really important to talk about the history of slavery that occurred 
in Latin America as well. And think that people misunderstand that the history of transatlantic slavery is also a story that necessarily involves Latin America. And that even so, Afro-Latina is still erased and Afro-Salvadorian history is still erased. So just wanted to ask you if you could just speak to the history of Afro-Descendencia in El Salvador. Yeah, of course. So there is a couple of sources of, let's say, African diasporas or not necessarily waves, but these small instances where African descended people come came into El Salvador, right? Mm-hmm. So in the mid to late 1500s, I know that there was a group of enslaved African people in Sonsonate. And I did link that in my article in the piece that I self-published. And, and so there were instances of enslaved African-descended people, and there were instances of African-descended people that came with the Spaniards, right? Mm -hmm. And so they came as free peoples Mm -hmm. is what I've read. And so there's different sources. It's, it's, they, yes, there was participation in the Atlantic slave trade, but I also think it's important to point out that there was multiple sources other than just the slave trade that is a source of our Afro-descendencia, right? Mm -hmm. And can be a source as to why there might be so much confusion in our oral histories of how Black people came to to El Salvador, right? Because if you think of it that way, if if you think of, okay, so some Black folks came with the the Spaniards as compañeros or, or what have you, their family oral history might not include the slave trade at all, right? Mm-hmm. And so that can muddy the waters as to how we're talking about Afro-descendencia and its history and also. And so it's a complicated picture is what I've come to learn after asking these questions, right? It wasn't a simple answer as to, yes, we had slaved peoples and we participated in the Atlantic slave trade, but it was multiple sources. And that's what scholars in El Salvador are doing now is trying to gather these sources and paint the picture for us, right? And that's what organizations like Afros, A-F-R-O-O-S is doing literally right now. They're trying to understand how how our African descended population came to be in their history, right? That's not talked about and purposely, I would say, hasn't been talked about in schools. Right, right. I think it's really important to note that El Salvador's as a nation states intentional policies of disinvesting from public education so that people don't know their history, don't don't know about the history of Af- the long-standing history of Afrodescendientes in in Salvador. Can you speak to the relationship between Afrodescendientes and people who are indigenous, so what we now call El Salvador, and how those racial hierarchies played out over time. I'm interested in hearing also about freed people who arrived in El Salvador and were Afrodescendientes and how 
what what they were afforded in in the political and social economy. Yeah, so we can start with the free people that came to El Salvador. So I recently was listening to a Facebook Live with Afros, and they were actually talking about that, that it was people that came with the conquistadores. Some of them were African-descended people from Spain, right? Mm-hmm. So they were free people in Spain, already had generations that were settled there, right? So they were Castellano ethnic- ethnically, but Black racially, we could say, right? And that's why we might have oral histories where we we say, oh, my ancestors came from Spain, right? But we don't know which which person from Spain it was, right? And so that's how we get people that might look afrodescendiente, saying that they have oral family history of people in Spain. In Portugal, Portugal was also a big um, mm-hmm. influence in El Salvador that I don't think is talked about a lot. There's some last names that actually come from Portugal. My last name is Parada, mm-hmm. and I learned that it comes from parts of Portugal and Galicia, which is really interesting, right? And so we have to also take that into consideration as to why there's so much confusion when it comes to the education. And so Afros has that Facebook Live up still. So I really recommend taking a look at that. It, it really goes in detail into that specific history and how that's influenced our racial identity formation now. And sorry, what was the second question? Oh, about... Whether or not there were racial hierarchies that were developed between people who were Afro-descendientes and people who are indigenous to what we call El Salvador. Yeah, no, it's a complicated question to think about, right? What does that mean? Especially the indigenous population in, in our country, in El Salvador, they have a lot that, that they have gone through. I mean, so many instances of massacres and genocides that have happened to our indigenous populations. I have read some books in which they mention some of the Afro-descendientes actually started mixing in with the indigenous population. And so we have communities of Afro-indigenous people, which mm-hmm. is the case for my dad's side of the family. They're Afro-indigenous and you can, you know, they have a lot of African features, but a lot of their practices are very indigenous, specifically more related Lenka practices, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. It really speaks to like how complicated the history of El Salvador has been, right? Because countries like Mexico and Peru have been the centers a lot of these colonial states, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of their history was preserved because a lot of the Europeans were first Mm -hmm. attracted to those colonies, right? And unfortunately, we weren't necessarily the priority, right? And so a lot of our history wasn't written down because of that, or at times purposely not written down, like in the case of Martinez, right? And so that's how we have Afro-Indigenous populations that have customs, traditions that are a mix of both Indigenous and and African, right? And that's why in certain instances you might see Indigenous women doing practices like carrying baskets on their head. That is a very African practice, right? And it comes from that that the assimilation between those two communities that that were probably marginal, very marginalized at the time. At the same time, especially during certain white supremacist campaigns, right, or genocides like La Matanza in the early 30s, right, that that event really targeted thousands of people and it also targeted African descended people, right? And so these two marginalized communities really did have to come together at times 
to 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 help each other. And so we can see how they, after time, mixed and became one community in certain instances. In other instances, though, there are there are instances where we do see hi- hierarchy between these communities. So just as an academic, I read a lot of papers, right? And I started mm-hmm. reading papers on skin color in mm-hmm. El Salvador and how that affects your income and stuff. And so mm-hmm. people who self-identified as Black actually had the lowest income compared to Indigenous, Mestizo, and, and white Salvadorans, right? So again, it's almost like a gradient effect. Right. So it was white yeah. Salvadorans made the most money, then mestizo, then indigenous, and then black Af- or Afro Salvadorans. Right. And so, again, it, it, it kind of spoke to me as kind of like the co- colorism that we might see right in, in Latin America and the blatant white supremacy that we have in, in, in Latin America as well that is affecting Salvadorans, even though we like to pretend that there are no black folks in El Salvador, right? But we see the same dynamics of white supremacy working in that country as they would in the United States, right? Because if it wasn't, then it wouldn't follow a similar pattern to the United States, right? Right. Can you spoke earlier about waves of migration and you've spoken about how there were some people who came and were enslaved during the colonial period. There were also freedmen who came alongside conquistadores. Were there other waves recent? From 1930 to, I believe, 1980, it, it was barred that non-European descended people could come into the country, although there was always exceptions. And honestly, this is what I like to tell people when I talk about this. I, I say, if your grandmother saw someone in Honduras that happens to be Afro-descendant in Honduras, right, and lives in, I don't know, La Union by the border, what was going to stop them at that time, you know, to get together and have a family, right? Also, there was always changes as to where the border was in these countries, mm-hmm. in Central America, mm-hmm. especially when it comes Definitely. to Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. At one point, I think it was called like the Kingdom of Guatemala, and then El Salvador and Guatemala were together, and Honduras and El Salvador, you know? So there's been a lot of different instances where the border has changed, right? And so that's going to change migrations as well, migration patterns, right? And so, for instance, just from speaking to people, right, not until recently people are even talking about their family or history on Afro-descendencia. So I've actually met a few people where their family oral history is that they have relatives from or ancestors from Jamaica, right? Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the building of the Panama Canal, right? Right. So we had migrations of of Jamaicans coming through, right? Even though they were barred from entry to the country, again, these borders change. And also at the end of the day, Yeah. I think there's a difference between a ban on paper or the immigration policies that exist on paper, even within the U.S., and then what actually happens in practice. Because, yes, Trump is trying to shut down the border and also undocumented people are a necessary part of this country's economy. And I'm sure the same is true of how necessary uh, undocumented workers were from Jamaica that were working on the Panama Canal. 
Exactly. Exactly. Right. So it was one thing if it was the law and it was a different thing in, in practice. Exactly. That was, that's a great way to wear it. I mean, that's exactly what I'm trying to say, <laughs> actually, where they might have been passing through El Salvador to get, you know, they could have been working in El Salvador after the Panama Canal. Right. There's or I've, I've spoken to a few people where they this is their like family history. Right. But until recently, it hasn't been recognized as a Salvadoran part of history, right? We always mm-hmm. think of it as mm-hmm. almost like a foreign history. Oh, your family yeah. must be from Honduras or your family must be from Nicaragua or, or um, your ancestors, right? And that's where I mean where, you know, borders have changed, right? So what was considered Salvadoran at one point is now Honduran in another era right mm-hmm. and that's i know that that's caused a lot of issues for people that live in the um, golfo de fonseca right where there's honduras and nicaragua right and it's changed a lot what country takes ownership of of what islands or which ones mm-hmm. they decide to colonize and so i think that also has caused kind of this erasure of the afro descendiente history right it's like oh it's not our history it's it's someone else's history right mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah, I think anti-blackness playing out again, literally. Right. And and that's why it's, it's almost it's a blatant anti-blackness that is just yes. so normalized. Right. Yeah. Oh, definitely. You're, oh, you must be Honduran, really. You're you're not Salvadoran. Right. That's an instance of. And why are they saying that? And it's usually people that are darker skin with curlier hair. Right. So it always stems from that that colorism and anti-blackness that's pervasive through our, our our society in El Salvador. And that starts to come over into, into the United States as well, how we all perceive each other, who we decide to socialize with, who we want to mm-hmm. be right. in community with, right? Mm-hmm. And so something that I think is very interesting is there have been instances where my mom is like, oh, you know, because I've been very open about my own ancestry. I have a white family. I have a white side, basically, because my mm-hmm. great-grandmother got disowned. I, I said this on, on Twitter, actually, because uh, we were talking about how we were trying to, pre- in the, especially in like 100 years ago, it was really important to preserve whiteness, right? So you were expected, if you were white, to marry someone that was white, right? Mm-hmm. And so my grandmother did not do that. And so she was disowned. And so after she had my grandmother and my great aunt, she remarried to a light-skinned mestizo and then had Mm -hmm. other light white children, right? And so that's why I have a white family, right? Because they were a part of marriage that she was in. Anyway, so I I get these interesting perspectives into how blackness works in in El Salvador and how whiteness works in El Salvador. And so my mom sometimes would be like, oh, you know, that family member would never socialize with this person if we were in El Salvador. And I would be like, why? And she's like, oh, because she's white and she's a higher class, supposedly, in El Salvador. But she's forced to speak to these people in, in the United States because she's an immigrant. Right. And, and so ever since I heard that, I thought that was so interesting. OK, but but why is that happening? Right. And so that's where I started also getting more interest in how Afrodescendencia works in, in El Salvador. And if that's the case, if they wouldn't speak to this person in El Salvador, I'm like, why is that? Right. And, and mm-hmm. I came to the conclusion has to do with anti-blackness. Right. But you can't say those words because then people are like, oh, no, but. But the same myth, black people didn't come to El Salvador. It's not, it's not valid, right? 
It's almost like yeah. a, a, a gaslighting effect, almost. Definitely gaslighting. It's it's gaslighting because it exists. It structures the country's whole racial narrative. There's intentional exclusion of this history from schooling, and it's it's for sure manipulative and gaslighting, like you said. Yeah, and it's, if it's not being taught in schools or, or that myth is being perpetuated in schools, it's almost validating that history, right? And so it gives people more justification to be anti-Black without the repercussions of it at all, right? Oh, why are you getting offended? You're not Black. There's no Black people in, the, in El Salvador, right? And I've heard that many times just personally, like things like, oh, fix your hair, right? Just these little microaggressions that have to do with afrodescendencia or stay out of the sun, you're going to get too dark. There's so many experiences that I've had that I, I've thought, okay, would you say this to a light-skinned mestiza, right? Or in the comment section, oh, she she must not be Salvadoran, right? There's mm-hmm. always that questioning of foreignness, right? Mm-hmm. Or she, she must be American somehow, right? Meaning African-American or, mm-hmm. or mixed. And so it, it's interesting how uh, sometimes we see conversations online where it'll say, oh, we don't have racism in Latin America, it's classism. Right. But it's actually a mix of both. More so the anti-Blackness at, at times, right? But it's a mix of both. Yeah. Well, I feel like, well, the capitalism in Latin America is racialized in the, exactly. you know, in the same way that the U.S.'s capitalist system is racialized as well. Right, it's very rooted in anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. That's why I had asked the question about the relationship between Afro-descendientes and indigenous people, people indigenous to what we call El Salvador because of this reason. Right, right. And I think you know, that during the colonial era, when they were first colonizing El Salvador and Latin America, they weren't really thinking about these complex questions about race that we have now, right? They were just like, you are other and you're just going to be subjugated. And it wasn't until the church got involved where they actually started making differentiation between indigenous and African descended people as like two totally different populations that should be treated differently. It's been also developed over time, right? Anti-blackness and how white supremacy works. It's not that it stayed stagnant or it's the same, but it's actually further developed to be more pervasive and also implicit in ways, right? Yeah, definitely. I brought up the question because also because I did another interview with my friend and academic Chris Rodello, who's studying 19th century Latinidad and performance. And what got him interested in that time period were these two Salvadorian quote unquote freak show performers called Maximo and Bartolo that have their history, exact history is unclear, but they were essentially sold because they had a developmental disability that made white people fascinated with Mm -hmm. them. And it was the World Fair era where Black, Indigenous, and other people of color were put up for display in a zoo. And he spoke to how even in that century context that Maximo and Bartolo were shaping ideas about Latinidad, and they were ultimately anti-Black because he talks about how the way that 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 Black people versus 
Maximo Bartolo were portrayed, it was very clear that they were trying to create a hierarchy. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about also the extent to which these racial hierarchies actually are directly imported <laughs> by the U by the U.S. and U.S. ideas, the Panama Canal, and how the building of it sent what brought with it like Jim Crow type era segregation and dictated a lot of racialized narratives in Panama. Yeah, and it, and it's still connected to to the U.S. till this day. So living in the in the D.C. metro area and growing up in the D.C. metro area, government is everywhere. And I don't mean that in yeah. just like a surveillance way. I mean that in, in your job. A lot of people work in government in ways that mm -hmm. you wouldn't even expect, right? So you might be a caterer, but you might be a vendor for a government building or something mm -hmm. like that, right? Like just mm -hmm. random ways you're connected. You, connected to the government. Like my parents are janitors. They've worked for very high security government building. Anyone mm. will work for the government at some point in their life. And so because of that, I've actually learned a lot about contracting, the contracting world and how that works. And basically the government will put up a request for proposal and be like, we need a security firm to help us make more, I don't know, weapons or something. I don't know but I can't think right now at the top of my head, but let's say it's something like working on lethal weapons or something like that. They might contract that out to a private company, right? And to come and do the work for them, right? And so then the government, what will what they'll do is they're just going to be monitoring and doing quality assurance checks, basically, quote unquote. We don't necessarily know what happens behind those closed doors, right? But they are funding a lot of times these private corporations. And so that's how we start getting really big security firms and contractors, right? Lockheed Martin, right? That's actually a really big one around here. Booz Allen, that's mm -hmm. another one. A lot of these really big firms. To tell you, there's even like streets named after them. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that, but yes, there are some streets named after <laughs> defense contractors, which is crazy. But how that's related to El Salvador is some of these security firms have been contracted by the Salvadoran government too mm. to train their officers, right? So let's think about what that means. That means that we have American-style policing being taught to people in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to the police in El Salvador, right? So what are they transferring that with them, right? First of all, we know that policing is connected to slavery, right? And mm -hmm. so just that alone makes it a foundationally anti-Black, right? Yeah. And so what they're transferring are these anti-Black policing tactics. And that's related, right, to how what we perceive as who is black and who is not black in, in El Salvador too, right? Mm -hmm. So just what you were talking about, how the media also influencing or, or performers also influence, right? How we perceive race as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so also these policing tactics are being passed down. It's shaping how people view who is dangerous, who is criminal and who is not criminal, right? Right. Well, so is that going to lead us into talking about MS-13? Yes. Their criminalization? Yes. 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 So we can talk about MS-13. So as, again, as someone that was raised in the D.C. metro area, MS-13 is something that I'm familiar with in the sense of it's always been something that's been 
like the boogeyman, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, be careful. You don't want to get someone angry or, you know, in school, don't mess with them. They're, you know, gang affiliated, things like that. Right. So I was, I was always wondering, like, how did that, this even happen? Right. Right. And so it had me thinking about, I learned about the history of, of the gang, how it started in LA as a reaction to the harassment, not just from police, but also from the anti-Central American sentiment from mm -hmm. Mexican populations. Mm -hmm. And then how many were deported, right? So we see how the police state, again, is coming in, influencing how we not only view ourselves, but how the mm -hmm. world viewed us at the time, yes. right? So because of the deportations, it, oh, you know, we were hammering down on crime, right? But yeah. then it just made the problem worse because then they were recruiting very vulnerable children in El Salvador. And so how that ties in with MS-13 is if, they, if they're passing down the police tactics to people in El Salvador, right, to the police in El Salvador, this also is, it's also passing down probably these practices that, that we're banning at this time right now in the United States, right? So stop and frisk, you know, mm -hmm. that's been passed down to the to El Salvador. And I'm not sure if that's banned there, right? So those are kind of like the questions that I'm starting to ask now. Is what practices are set in in anti like anti black practices police practices that are banned here like are they still being used in El Salvador right and how does that tie with people that are more marginalized because of their afro descendencia right how does that fit into the trainings that are given right who is criminalized who is considered criminal and how they look the fashion that certain people wear mm -hmm. right might mm -hmm. get them to be criminalized because of the trainings that are being passed down right so I know the, the the police departments in this area, at least, they have like a list of people that are supposedly gang affiliated, right? But I've right. heard stories from people that they're like, you know, I was just waiting for the bus and a police officer said, why are you, you dressed that way? Why are your pants sagging? And he was just like, I'm just waiting for the bus. But because he was in gang territory, he got added to the list of potential gang members, right? So there we see that it was almost, this, it's the same practices that we see that happen in the Bronx in New York in the 80s, right? And then in the 90s being used. I'm not as familiar with New York politics as I am with Virginia, DC, and Maryland to be fair <laughs> because ours is very complicated because we also have the whole lens of the south added to it right that is just makes it all very much more complicated right and i think that's what sets it apart and these defense contractors are in this area as well right and so think of who's being hired at these companies who's giving the trainings to the police over there and then who's being targeted in in el salvador based on on these trainings right and so these are questions that aren't being really asked to be quite honest because no one's really made that connection as to where where are our police officers getting these trainings and information that is targeting youth in el salvador too right so there's a thriving youth culture right now in el salvador um, that of like a rap uh thriving rap subculture right now. One artist that I is uh, looks to me Afro-Sendiente, his name is Drove Kid, I believe. And they talk about, you know, being targeted by the police, right? Based on how mm -hmm. they look, right? And this is just the same kind of script that we hear in the United States, like in places like New York City, DC, Richmond, Virginia, LA, you know, all these urban cities where we have more communities that are marginalized and, and receive anti-blackness. 
too. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if you're familiar with James Cavallaro's study. came out in 2010, and he talked about the mano dura policies in El Salvador in the early 2000s that literally even to the name mano dura were replicas of 1980s tough on crime policies that Reagan was putting forth. So there's just constant and like the history of the U.S., training military and police forces in Latin America goes so far back. I've also talked about the School of the Americas and how central they, a role they have played in in the training of Latin American police officers and in militarizing them as well with various kinds of weapons that I think we're now coming to recognize as torture, like, you know, tear gas. Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, the United States is still using that to this day on on people. And it's, of, of course, because, like I said, a lot of, of their police tactics in El Salvador come from the United States. You know, of course, they're going to be using this type of similar tactics over there as well. But yes, like right now, I know that there's like a feminist movement going on in El Salvador, right, where women are, are asking for protection. And what mm-hmm. I and what I notice is that a lot of times I see pictures of like Afrodescendiente women mm-hmm. asking for dignity and respect and, and identification, right? And so it made me also think about how race and gender also interact with each other, especially for Afro Salvadoreñas, right? Women that are from San Miguel, I've noticed a lot of time now when I would go and visit family in, in San Miguel, it's it's a very hot, it's like one of the more hotter areas of El Salvador, right? And there's always jokes about it, about women there, you know, are dressed, you know, more um, revealing at times, you know, mm. and I grew up because I'm like, it's hot. Like, of course, you're going to want to wear shorts. <laughs> right, of course, you're going to want to wear shorts. It's, it's hotter than sweating. it is in like San Vicente and Santa Tecla, you know, like it is very hot in San Miguel, right? And then I started noticing that some of the same stereotypes were starting to be applied to afro Salvadoreñas from, from Oriente specifically a lot of times. So, oh, you know, you have that accent, you guys dress different, you guys in San Miguel. Some of those very misogynist kind of tropes that are given to Black women, I've noticed mm-hmm. that are a lot of times are given to afro Salvadoreñas too in, in El Salvador, right? And it it has to do with, again, where a lot of those U.S. ideas on race are being passed down through influences in the media, through the government and, and collaborations with the U.S. government as well, right? And so that also influences how people are going to view race and how they identify race and how they are going to treat people of certain races, right? So, you know, those anti-Black, misogynist ideas and and attitudes are going to be also starting to look more and more like U.S. anti-Blackness, I've noticed. And again, that has to do with the relationship, the close relationship that they've had with, with the U.S., I believe. Yeah. I think also, I've already mentioned this, but the intentional disinvestment from public education and investing in public history, I think is also a huge issue here. And I'm really grateful that you came onto the podcast to talk about Afro-Descendencia and to allow the the shedding light of this marginalized community that is intentionally erased. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, it's it's really, I think, a topic that we're still really learning about. Um, right. It's something that I'm really drawing from, to be quite honest, my own experience as being Afrodescendiente, growing up in a very Salvadoran area. I'm not sure if you know about the D.C. metro area, but it's extremely Central American. Even yeah, Salvadoran uh, in particular. In particular, yeah. So you'll have some people that are like, you know, white Americans learning Spanish, and then all of a sudden they're, they're calling you Cipote or something. I'm confused. So it's very odd. It's a very odd area. But you grow up in a very Central American environment, a very Salvadoran environment, but I was always questioned of my own Salvadoranness. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered why. Mm-hmm. And then learning about the history of San Miguel, how there was a high Afrodescendencia at one point, like 95% identified as mulatto or black in the late 1800s, I believe, in, in San Miguel, right? And that's where my family is from. Also in places like Sacatecoluca, there was like huge Afro-Indigenous communities, right? Which also I have another family tied to that location, right? And so it started mm-hmm. to make sense to me. And what I like to say is, I used to be very much like, oh, Latinidad, you know, flag, whatever. (laughs) Because, you know, of marginalization, right? But I didn't put two and two together that a lot of the marginalization that I was experiencing was anti-Blackness as well, right? right? right. Because there would be moments where I'd be in Latinx spaces and I'm like, oh yeah, there's going to be camaraderie, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd hear something anti-Black and I'm like, yo, that's messed up. Like, why would you say that? And then they'd be like, why do you care? You're not Black. And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, I I don't know. I'm very offended by what you said and it kind of applies to me a little bit. Like, I don't, when it comes to like hair, right? Making fun of certain Mm -hmm. hair. And I'm like, my hair is curly and it's, Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes, you know, have to wear my hair and braids as well. And like, why are you making fun of, you know, like things that were very familiar to me, like hair braiding is something that happens a lot in, in San Miguel specifically. Like I was very used to seeing women in braids and stuff, including box braids. Those are, uh, I've seen women in box braids, Afrodescendiente women in San mm-hmm. Miguel, right? So that's something that like is not crazy for me to see. And so when I heard like anti-black comments about black women's hair, I'd be like, hey, but I know people that do that hairstyle and it's fine. And so when I started talking to black women, right, in in college about how anti-blackness works and white supremacy, they're like, no, that's anti-blackness. Like that doesn't apply Mm -hmm. to every Latinx person, right? And so that's when I started also thinking about, you know, oh, wait, we all have a very distinct experience then. And that must also be affecting our lives, our day-to-day lives, right? And that influenced me going into grad school and looking more at these like trajectories of immigrant students. And that's why I was really sad I couldn't look at Afro-Latinidad, right? Because I really wanted to, but it was a self-identification survey for the parents' self-identification, like what they think their child's race is. So Mm -hmm. it was like, you know, it's it's also a testament to how, you know, research is is really important, but we also have to make sure that it's it's thoroughly more consideration on how anti-Blackness might work. Right. But because we're not work, because we're not always thinking about those things, we might miss certain ways we could ask certain questions. Right. Um, yeah, a thousand percent. Yeah. Like census in El Salvador for a long time, it would just ask, are you European white? Are you indigenous or are you black, but not of race? No, negro, pero no de raza. 
right? And I've heard that That's, before. What, is that, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows what that means, right? And I've heard that before. People use that. Oh, él es negro, pero no negro de raza. He's black, but he's not black race or of the race. And every time people would say that, I, I would just look at them. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, they're either black or they're not black, right? Right. What makes them different? And I guess it, 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 I, my hypothesis has to do with our different ancestry compared to other black diasporas, right? We have a very indigenous history in El Salvador. Like we still have a very high percentage of people that have some ties to the indigenous um, heritage, right? Some people with like grandparents that were lived in indigenous, you know, towns and, and such. So it's not like too of a distinct history for us in particular. And I think that's what makes it different and why we might look different compared to other black diasporas. And that's how I think the gaslighting kind of comes from uh, where they're mm -hmm. like, oh, but you don't look like other black people. Right. And that's something that they actually mentioned in the Facebook live through Afros, how like people use that as a way to gaslight. Oh, you don't look like you're black. No eres negro de raza. Right. But they're just referring to African-American and what mm. they stereotype as what is black. Right. So it always comes down to this anti-black attitude and what black people should and should not look like. Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to shed light on the historical and contemporary anti-blackness that exists within Salvador and also the really rich history of Afrodescendencia in El Salvador. I really appreciated you coming onto the podcast and hope to have you on again. Maybe we can discuss more about your academic trajectory research when you have that right sample size of Afro-Latinx students. Yeah, I definitely hope for that. I hope in the future, my plans are to do some work on Afro-Latinidad for Salvadorans specifically. So I will keep you posted on that. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, all right. Thank you so much. And I hope you all enjoyed this interview. Mm -hmm.